Hello and welcome to today's edition of HIV Matters. HIV Matters explores the current issues people living with HIV experience that impacts on their quality of life. The podcast is hosted by me, Michelle Croston, Associate Professor of Nursing at the University of Nottingham. I have a long history of working in HIV care and will be joined on the podcast by leading professionals and activists in the field of HIV that I've had the pleasure of working with throughout my career. HIV Matters is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Vive. Vive has had no input into speakers or content. Today I'm being joined on the HIV Matters podcast by Ian Hodgson. Although I've worked with Ian for many years, I'm worried that I'm not going to do him justice with his bio, so I'm going to hand him over to Ian now, who can talk us through his career. Thanks, Michelle, and it's great to be on this podcast, and thanks for the invitation. And hello, everybody. Uh, yeah, my name's Ian Hodgson. I've been involved in the international health sector for over 20 years, but a long time ago, I used to be a nurse, and I worked in um, Sheffield before I actually went into teaching, so I lectured at Sheffield University, then Bradford University, and since 2010, I've been a freelance consultant for M&E in HIV projects. And my main interests are around HIV stigma, around community capacity building, and around treatment advocacy. And that's, that's a lot of that is what I do at the moment. So I'm on the board of the European AIDS Treatment Group, which is a patient-led uh, advocacy organisation that works across the European region and with a number of HIV key populations in a number of countries. My work is mainly at the moment to do with evaluating HIV projects in various countries. And prior to COVID, of course, I did lots of travelling to do this, but everything now is being done from home, which probably proves that I may not have needed to travel so much in the past. But it was great fun while I did it. So there you go, how times change, but um, it's all okay. Thank you for sharing that with us. So lots of great topics that we can pick up on throughout the podcast. So I've had the pleasure of working with you for a number of years on a variety of different projects. More recently, during lockdown, we co-edited a book together, which was exploring some of the things that you've kind of talked about, which was um, providing care in the field within HIV. So I'm just wondered if you'd be able to just share for our listeners some of the lessons that we learned doing that book and maybe some of the key chapters that we were looking through. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Well, as you say, yeah, we edited this book uh, last year, didn't we, Michelle? And um I think we're both pleased with how it came out. Um, the process itself was was uh, interesting. Uh, it's the first time I've edited the book, although I know you've done it before. But it's my first experience. But I know that one of the aims of the book, when we discussed it right at the beginning, was to get input from nurses and people working in the field from as many different countries as possible across Europe and also the US as well, to get different perspectives. Because even though there are basic principles of HIV care that apply in any context, there are a lot of contextual differences, which mean that it's useful to hear what people are doing, how people are supporting different HIV key populations in various countries. So I think we did really well in the sense that we got a fair representation for Cost Europe. So we had people writing from the UK, from Portugal, from Finland, uh, from the US, working in a range of specialties, all working in the HIV sector, but all working in a range of specialties. And I think for me, doing this was as well as having to write my own chapter, of course, which is an additional strain, I think supporting writers, some of whom hadn't done much writing before, some of the contributors, uh, as you know, Michelle, and people who look at the book will know, were academics, and therefore had experience writing things, or work, had, had experience writing lots of reports and things before. But I think supporting people who hadn't written very much was quite 
it was it was nice if that's the right word to use because they obviously had lots of ideas they just needed support in getting these ideas onto paper and being able to write things which they felt other people would be interested in and that's one of the key things about supporting writers is making them feel that they do have something to say because everybody has something to say and one of the things that stops people writing is they feel oh everybody else knows this i don't need to tell people everybody else knows this but of course we don't often know what's going on so we don't know what's going on in supporting hiv key populations in portugal for example or the issues around migrant communities in finland we don't know much really about those situations but to the writer it seems obvious to them So all we have to do as editors is support people in writing about their world in order to tell other people what may be going on. And I think that's one of the best things um, that I think we got from the book is that we did have some fairly inexperienced writers who were experienced in their own sector but hadn't written a chapter in a book. And it was nice to be able to work with them to get them to feel confident enough to write for a more wider audience. And I think the range of topics we covered in the book, I think, was very... um, very productive and I think just looking through the chapter headings now we've got people writing about sexual health for people living with HIV people with HIV living in rural areas in the UK but living away from major centres what kind of support do they need we had people writing about ageing and people living with HIV and also issues around compassion so because HIV now has been around for so long and because treatment is now so effective People living with HIV, moving into different different parts of their lives, onto different parts of life's journey. And they do need different types of support as they enter these different transitional periods as they move into old age or um, other types of transitions. And therefore, this book tried to cover some of that as well. So it was great. And I know you said so as well. It's great to get it out. We now need to get more people to read it, of course. That's the, that's the next challenge. Yeah, and I agree. And if I learn the skills, I will try and find out how I drop the link to the book in there as well. And I think we will try and put on some book launch events. I know that was the ambition mm, mm, of mm. the book as well. And I think, you know, reflecting on what you've been saying, again, there was, it was really nice from my point of view to have so many new and different authors kind of really sharing those experiences and mentoring and supporting them behind the scenes as well. One of the things that I was really kind of impressed with, with with the book is just the breadth of people that came forward. So we had novice writers, but we also had really experienced academics, you know, leaders in their field. They, yeah, this is a great topic to write. And I'm thinking about the compassion chapter that you mentioned, you know, people who are leading experts in their own right, given the time to really sort of embed some of these principles in HIV care, one of my highlights um, as well. Yeah, that's right. And we need to acknowledge also, they wrote the chapter during the first year of lockdown. So a lot of them were working nurses, working nurses, also with me and you badgering them politely and very nicely, of course. But have you have you written anything yet? So they wrote under immense pressure. Um, so that was also wonderful of them to do that for us. We hope, don't we, that it gave them a thirst uh, to write more stuff now. Now they've been published. Definitely. I think that was one of the the nicest things about the process as well. We was like tentatively approaching people because we was appreciative of the circumstances that they were writing in. And they were all just really delighted for the support and encouragement. And it it really made it worthwhile as an editor. Mm, mm, That mm. was a great part of the process. 
also just kind of listening to you I'm thinking about when I started my academic career I remember submitting to a variety of different journals um, and receiving lots of mixed comments and I can I remember thinking that was really you know can be quite disparaging because it can be you think oh gosh I'm doing my best here and you're getting these mixed results and then I remember fortunately submitting something to HIV nursing and you was kind enough to mentor me through my first presentation. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. just wondering, you know, how from your perspective, how do you see, you know, mentorship and the role of mentorship when supporting people to write for publication? Well, it's a, it's a very important part, and I think everybody in any walk of life benefits from some kind of mentoring, whether this is informal or more formal through work or informal just through friendships and things, and uh, and people we respect who give good advice. Mentoring is an interesting, because mentoring in nursing was just starting to come in after I left the clinical side. And when I went into academia back in the day, this is back in the 90s, mentoring was coming in as a, as a thing. It's something I tried to set up actually just before I left the clinical side when I was a charge nurse. And we had mentors for students. And that was so important for the student then. But I think the whole process of mentoring is vital for any kind of personal development because we need people to say, yes, you're doing this well, but also these are the areas you need to improve. And I know that's how I always support writers. And that's hopefully what came across when I was supporting you, because it's important to acknowledge, yes, this is good. These ideas are good. What would make it stronger is this, this and this. And don't be afraid to speak more about this because we don't know anything about this. Don't think that anybody knows this. So write, write more about this if you want to. And what was interesting, I do remember when I was, when you and I were doing this back in, this back in 2009 or 10, I think. I think it's, I was a student because I was doing another master's degree in Dublin, a master's in global health to beef up my kind of international public health experience. So I was a student mentoring you as a writer. So I was trying to, support you in a way that I like to be supported when I'm writing because I still send a lot of the stuff I write to to a copy editor who's also a friend and she's very good at saying yes this is good but you know you could reword this and you don't need to say this four times just once is fine and it's advice like that which is really helpful for any writer because I do say that um, behind every good writer is a good editor because it's the editor who gives the advice and gives the support and tells you how to make the argument stronger without necessarily writing more. Just it, it can be in the structure, it can be in the way you say things and give examples uh, and the way you conclude. Just uh, talking about structuring, uh, the great inspiration for me has always been, and this is weird, and hopefully I think it fits with this podcast, yeah, it does, for writing has been, is um, the from our own correspondence series on the BBC Radio, on BBC Radio 4 which is something that um, perhaps people haven't listened to, but it's, it's an interesting way of writing. So if you want to know how to write that engages people, from our own correspondent is very good because it's basically a journalist sitting in the middle of some city in some country, writing about what he or she sees. They often begin a very traumatic report about some difficult event by saying, I was speaking to X the other day by the side of the road, and she told me this, this, and this. And I went out and saw this for myself. This political reader said this, did this, they did this, they did this. And then right at the end of the article, they go back. And, and I spoke to X by the side of the road again today. And she said this, this, and this. And that stayed with me. This is the journalist saying, this stayed with me uh, as something that we can learn from this kind of experience. So I think that kind of structuring is very good. So what I'm saying is when writing, don't be afraid to write from your personal experience. What have you seen? Who have you spoken to? Why is this important? It's an important topic. 
Is it just because I, as a writer, think it's important? Or do the people I've spoken to say it's important and therefore needs more visibility? So I think that's, that's a useful approach as well. And that's something I try and encourage when I'm mentoring people. Don't be too remote all the time. You know, how is this, how is this important to you? Why, why do you think it is crucial for, for sharing? Well, that's great advice, Ian. And I think, you know, definitely reflecting on our time together and you being an invaluable mentor throughout my career, I think we can get into the habit of nurses quite easily, can't we? Thinking about, well, what does this academic say? What does that academic say? Like you said from the, the chapter contributions we had for the book, you know, people on the ground floor looking around and observing what care happens is really, really important and getting that voice through. It is. I'm just thinking as well, we've both been um, editors now for HIV nursing for some time, which um, for those listeners who are, are listening who aren't familiar with that, it's the Journal for the National HIV Nurses Association. And it's something that I've been particularly passionate about throughout my career. because I think it's a great place for nurses who are working in the field to really start sharing some of these clinical experiences with different readers. Now, recently, we've been We've entered into a really exciting <laughs> with the journal, and um, something that I'm kind of glowing with pride with. So I'm just wondering, Ian, if you'd like to share an update for those listeners who haven't been aware of where we're at with the journal. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. That's a very good question. And yeah, we've we've both been involved in HIV nursing for a long time. And actually, my, my one of my two claims to fame is uh, that um, I was actually on the very first editorial committee of HIV nursing back in the year 2000. What impressed me then, and still does, it was the first journal just for HIV nurses uh, in Europe. The US uh, has a very strong organization for HIV nurses, and they had their own journal early in, early in the process as well. But this HIV nursing was the first one that was for UK-based nurses to share research about HIV care and to share experiences and to try and get some kind of academic background to the practice of HIV nursing, which was especially at that time, because of course in 2000, it was only four years after 1996, the big, big uh, turnaround in treatment provision for people living with HIV. So the new treatments were coming through very rapidly in 2000. So there's also a need, especially for nurses who didn't work in HIV, but might admit an HIV patient, say to a general medical ward, they need to know what the current treatments are what the issues around care are and how best to support this patient who isn't within their own area of expertise. So yes, from 2000, of course, HIV nursing went from strength to strength. And certainly by the end of the teens, 2000 teens, it was a very strong and highly respected publication and still the only one in Europe, which I think is still a strength. Of course, there were articles about HIV in other nursing journals, but this was the only journal specifically for HIV nursing. But then, of course, things happened and things changed, and there was a need to find another outlet for these collections of articles aimed at HIV nursing. So the discussions with the British Journal of Nursing, I think, have been really productive. And I think we now see, don't we, because it's been posted to even the members. I'm holding it. So you can imagine, glossy, it's shiny, and it's got a lot of pages at the back just on HIV nursing, which is really good. And I think it's a really positive outcome. And as we were saying before the recording, Michelle, I think this is going to help expand even more the reach of expertise in HIV nursing to a much wider audience. 
because I think one of the biggest waves of change, if you like, over the last few years in, in nursing broadly, this is broadly, is that there's much more cross-fertilisation between specialties and therefore it's important that non-HIV specialists see what's happening in the nursing sector. But also, because this journal is sent to even the members, it's very important for HIV nurses to see what's happening in other areas of nursing because there is such a big crossover. And now that, um, you'll remember, Michelle, back in our day, there were, there were HIV units where really separate to the general wards and there was very little movement between the two. I mentioned earlier about sometimes HIV positive patients being a bit of general wards but it, they only stayed on there for the immediate acute time and often they were then transferred to an HIV unit. This is back in, back in the day but now with HIV units becoming less prominent because people living with HIV on effective treatments aren't admitted to hospital that much for HIV-related issues. They're more likely to come in with other issues to do with ageing or to do with other conditions that require surgical interventions. There's a great need for more knowledge to be shared, and I think that's what one of the outcomes from this this collaboration will be, and I think it's a really, really strong and effective uh, development. So it's exciting, yeah. And who knows, because I, I, I can now look at it, and there's, there's chapters in the other parts of the journal on all kinds of stomas. I've not read anything about stomas for years. Uh, so look, there's an article on stomas I can read as well. So it's even helping me broaden my outlook, you know, stomas, who'd have thought? And I think you've just captured that really well, Ian, haven't you? As we've had this natural evolution of kind of care, we've seen to us as an organisation, we've never seemed to kind of keep on top of that and move mm -hmm. forward with that. And I think this is a really great chapter. The HIV nursing and also for NIVMA as well, that we are, you know, thinking about publishing our great work in a wider nursing audience, for mm, mm. those lessons learned as well. So I'm really excited mm, where mm. this could lead um, as well. I'm very optimistic about that sharing of good practice because I think sometimes it's easy to get caught up in the silos of working, um, whereas we can like think about great practice that are being shared. Mm, mm, mm. So yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to the next chapter. So with that in mind, I'm just wondering if, if anybody's listening and thinking that they would like to write for HIV nursing, is there any advice that you may want to give them? Well, first of all, don't be afraid to write. The nursing supplement in BGN is peer-reviewed, but it's, it's peer-reviewed by other nurses and nursing academics. So we, we know what it's like, the kind of things you would write about. We have some insights into it. And all of the, the, the entire editorial team are very strong on mentoring. So I think don't be afraid about submitting things just so we can see. We will send positive comments back because our aim is to get more nurses to publish because they know what's going on in the clinical areas much, much more than other people in some ways. So therefore, don't be afraid to write and don't be afraid to submit for comments. And don't be afraid to then modify it according to the comments because it will make the article stronger and that's part of the writing process. So as a writer, one of the downsides is, of course, other people reading and commenting, but we hope that the kind of support that we would give from the HIV nursing uh, BJN supplement side would be positive because that's our aim is to get more people to write, uh, to get more people involved. But be prepared for a, a back and forth. As you send in something for comment, we put comments in. You rework it, we do some more comments. You rework it again. But that's the normal writing process. Every single person who's ever written anything always goes through this back and forth with an editor or a peer reviewer and having to then rewrite. 
even in my work, because I mentioned earlier I work in international health and I do project evaluations of HIV projects. In the last place was Mozambique. I did that just before the lockdown. So I was in Mozambique um, in 2020. So I did I did some reports from that. And yeah, the it went back and forth. I think there were two or three rounds before the people I was writing for were happy with my reports. But I think my record of report writing is five rounds back and forth. Anybody writing for HIV and it shouldn't it shouldn't be it would never go to five times something's changed and commented. I think we usually see a couple, two or three usually, and that's usually enough. Uh, and also the final thing I would say the articles will be then copy edited finally. So once we've gone through the review process and, and the, the article is looking good, looking strong, the writer is happy with it, the peer review team are happy with it, it will then, as the final stage, go to a real copy editor who will tidy it all up and make it gorgeous. So you don't have to make it gorgeous at the beginning because it, it's, it's a kind of two-stage process. It goes to the peer reviewers for content, so we make sure it's got all the things that we need, and then it goes to a copy editor, and that's the person who polishes it. And Michelle and I would both say that the copy editors are golden. They are gods and goddesses in this world because they will make any script, any text, look amazing and wonderful. And they've helped me out numerous occasions tidying up my writing. Uh, and I'm sure, Michelle, you've had the same experience. So I think that's what I would say to any budding writers out there. Don't be afraid for our comments because we just want to encourage you to get your, your, your material out there. And also, don't feel stressed. It has to be perfect into the standards that you see in journals. Part of the submission process is the final stage. It goes to the copy editor who then makes it, it, makes it suitable to go into a journal. Uh, and therefore, there are people helping you uh, in getting something out there. That's brilliant, Ina. I think these are the, the, the sound bits of advice I would have liked um, prior to kind of embarking on that. Yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> me too, at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the beginning, because I thought, oh gosh, first of all, you get over, I can't possibly do it. Then you muster up the courage to think I can put words on paper. And then you're shocked when you get the, the comments back because you think, oh gosh, I was rubbish in the first place. But to know that it's naturally part of the process. Yes, yes. Internal messages we say to each other, oh, my grammar's not that good, my spelling's not that good, I'm just reflecting on my own experiences. Actually, we don't need to worry about that. It's all part of process and definitely um, would echo what you've just said Ian about the, the editorial team at HIV Nursing you definitely want to kind of tease out great pieces of work I know from my own students who have published as well it's been a really good process for them to go through thanks for sharing all those top tips So also, Ian, I'm mindful that we also support another um, society, the European HIV Nursing Network. And again, this has been, I think our last conference was in Rome. Uh, 2019, I think. It still feels like such a long time ago that. Um, I was just wondering, is there any news on that association or any more conferences on the horizon? Yeah, thanks, Michelle. That's, again, an interesting question. The European HIV Nursing Network has, it, has itself quite a long history. It's based on an organisation that was founded, I think, in the 90s, called the European Association of Nurses in AIDS Care, ENAC. And that was formed partly in reflection of the need at that time. We've talked about Nevenus Foundation in the 90s and the HIV Nursing Journey in 2000, when HIV nursing was really taking off because of new treatments coming through because of much, much more positive outcomes for people living with HIV um, uh, from the treatment and also from the kind of care they were able to receive. 
ENAP folded in the noughties, 2000s, and therefore a new organisation was formed, which had its opening conference in Warsaw in 2008, uh, the European HIV Nursing Network. Yeah, that's right. That's when it first got its name. But then it's kind of evolved since then because a lot of individual countries now have quite strong HIV nursing groups, like in the Netherlands has a very strong group of HIV nurses. Finland has a very strong group. Portugal has a very strong group. And Germany also. And therefore, the need for a European-wide network to share HIV information wasn't as crucial in the late noughties because national organisations were doing it quite well themselves, and therefore they didn't need a European network. So after the 2010-11, it became more informal. It's more of a collection of people working in HIV who kept in touch and who shared things by email or by Facebook. But this was then picked up by Nivna in the, in the mid-teens. And Nivna and EHNN kind of ran a, their first joint conference, which was in, where was that? Was it Poland again? I can't remember. Was it Barcelona? Barcelona, that's right, thanks, in 2014-15. So even though it was an EHNN conference, Nivna were also quite heavily involved as one of the strongest European HIV nursing groups. And since then, we, uh, as a network, have been running conferences. We did another one in um, Barcelona and then another, then one in Rome. They've been about every two years, every two or three years. But sadly, we've had to postpone the most recent two plan. We are hopefully planning to have one uh, this year, but I think because of COVID-19, I think any plans for face-to-face meetings are very sketchy, I think, for all organisations trying to organise face-to-face events, myself included with the European AIDS Treatment Group. We've had numerous face-to-face events that have had to be taken virtual because of COVID-19. So in answer to your question, Michelle, there's nothing on paper planned for a face-to-face. Originally, it was going to be, I think, April. But if, again, as different countries go into lo- different levels of lockdown, it's very hard to put something in concrete about how can we bring people together in this one place? Because they may be coming from countries that have much stricter COVID-19 control measures that, say, the UK has or other countries have. But the network is still alive in the sense that people are still very much in touch. People are still sharing information. But there's no definite plans for a face-to-face as yet. But also, I would say, repeat something I said at the beginning, which is different countries have developed some very strong national level HIV nursing groups, which is a really good thing to see because they can then share very local information. But the one benefit of the European meeting is us finding out what's happening in those countries because the Netherlands might do things slightly differently to the UK, which might do things slightly differently to, say, Lebanon, or things slightly differently to what happens in Finland because each country faces faces its own fairly unique number of needs in the support of HIV affected people and therefore it's always good to hear what's going on and that's one of the main benefits of a European network is that we can hear what's happening in different countries. So no sadly but watch this space. I will definitely keep listeners updated on any conferences that are emerging from this group because I know reflecting on my own personal development and experiences of being part of that conference I have learned some amazing lessons around HIV nursing. Mm, mm, and also, um, I, was, was, I was fortunate to be at a conference where delegates from Russia came to share those experiences and the Ukraine. And it was just fabulous to be part of that um, experience of learning more about how different countries respond 
to different challenges as well. So definitely. I think so. And that's been one of the major benefits because we did have people from the east of Europe. Uh, I think we also brought people in from Kazakhstan and also from Latvia and Lithuania uh, to attend. And I think what's interesting about that is you realise that even though the Western model of healthcare, the Western health system, is all quite similar, really. I mean, the NHS is, a, is an outlier because of the way it's funded. But all Western countries have quite similar health systems, which are open access and socialised and therefore meeting all the health needs of the population. In the east of Europe, it's quite different. They have different health systems, different funding, ways of funding them, and also different approaches to different diseases. And in the context of HIV, different key populations of people affected by HIV. And therefore, it's, it's an important reminder that, yeah, in the west of Europe, things are going reasonably well in most countries regarding the support of people living with HIV, the way that they receive care and treatments. It's pretty stable and pretty constant um, in, in probably all countries. But in the east of Europe, it is different. They do have different experiences, for example, in countries with a high rate of injecting drug use. The drug use is heavily penalised in these countries still, and therefore it's quite hard and challenging for organisations to support people who inject drugs. And in other countries as well, men who have sex with men are heavily stigmatised still. For HIV organisations supporting these groups, they have additional difficulties in providing effective support because it's heavily criminalised as a sector. So I think it's very important to hear what's happening in other parts of Europe, especially the East, because they're going through some additional difficulties and therefore we can support them in what they're doing. But also it's important for us to hear from them what solutions they've found, because they do find ways around the challenges and often have to be very creative in ways that we don't think, we, we've never thought of because we haven't fa faced the same kind of problems. So that, that, that mixing of information, I think, is a very valuable part of these European-wide meetings. So that's why I hope that um, we will have another one soon. I'll keep listeners um, posted with any confirmed dates because I think you're right, you so much of learning that we do and that networking as well at conference. I know I've met some lifelong friends and learned some great, great um, inspirational ideas about how we practice um, mm. as well. So I'm wondering, what projects have you got lined up for this next year? I'm hoping to do some work with the Centre for Reproductive Health in the US. Uh, it's an advocacy legal organisation that fights to improve access to family planning services in the US and also to abortion. And I think most listeners will know these, both these are under grave threat at the moment. Certainly access to abortion with... Roe versus Wade possibly being being turned around and therefore giving states much more power to ban abortion, which has, of course, happened already in Texas. And just access to family planning for women as well, which is patchy at the best of times in the US, depending on the state. Centre for Reproductive Rights works in these areas, so I'll be doing a bit of work with them on, on various parts of their programming and, and their external face of how they're seen by other organisations. Uh, the other major part of my work is with the European AIDS Treatment Group. I mentioned right at the beginning of this, um, I'm on the board of the European AIDS Treatment Group, and therefore there's always things to do and to take responsibility of as a board member. The European AIDS Treatment Group has about 170 members across Europe of communities of people affected by HIV or working in the HIV sector, and therefore there's always things to do around uh, supporting them and preparing for the General Assembly, which we hope will be in Tallinn in Estonia in September. But who knows? The last two have both been virtual. 
So who knows how that will turn out? It's probably virtual again. You know, who knows? So that's the other part, major part of my work. And of course, as, as we talked about before we started recording, I've got two grandchildren. So of course, looking after them uh, occasionally will um, will be something very much on the radar for the rest of 2022. So it sounds like you've got a busy 12 months coming, coming up. And, mm. and hopefully we can invite you back to talk about some of these projects as they emerge. I'm sure our listeners would be really interested in watching that space about sexual and reproductive health and funding. And um, definitely something that both Nifra and myself are passionate about. Of course, yeah, yeah. Living with HIV and also women in general. So thank you so much um, for answering those questions and taking part in the podcast. So this is the part of the show that I enjoy. Um, I know we've had the pleasure of um, a long working relationship and friendship together. But just for our guests, I'm just wondering, can you name for our listeners something that brings you joy? Something that brings me joy? That's a very good question. Um, Well, I mean, the the standard answer is family and the grandkids, of course. Uh, They bring me a lot of joy, but also a lot of exhaustion as well. But uh, that's great fun. But I listen to a lot of music, Michelle. I've always listened to music. Well, I trained to be a music teacher. I didn't say that at the beginning. I trained to be a music teacher first before I did nursing. Of course, my daughter is lovely and my grandkids are wonderful. Having 20 school children in the same room at the same time is always a bit uh, stressful. Well, it was stressful for me. Well, no, I, I, I enjoyed it. The kids enjoyed it, but they didn't learn very much. I don't think it's a very productive experience for them. So I, I, that's why I chose to go into nursing. Still do listen to a lot of music. Uh, I listen to a lot of... Um, different styles of music. I like music from different countries, uh, traditional music from different countries. And that brings me interesting joy because it helps me travel to countries without being there. So hearing traditional Georgian music, for example, it gives you an inkling of what it must be like to be in the country a little bit, a little bit. Secondly, I watch lots of movies. They bring me joy as well. Lots of world cinema movies. But also, and this is really corny, I'm not sure if it's corny or not. Um, I... When I'm doing things, I like listening to Taylor Swift because her songs are so uh, so well written. She's such a good songwriter, and I know she gets a lot of heat. Although I think um, I'm not sure people would listen to all her stuff when they say that, but uh, I think she's she's a good role model in many ways uh, because she survived a long time in the music business, which is very anti-women generally, unless they're of a certain type. And secondly, she takes a lot of heat from trollers. And people who, uh, you know, death threats and all kinds of things. Mm. But she's still very good with her fans. She's got very uh, fans. She's very faithful to her fan base, even through all the changes she's been through from country and Western singer back in the day to what she is now. And she's also um, a left-leaning Democrat in the US, which is not common among people who are originally country and Western singers. And finally, Kanye West doesn't like her. So it's got to be a plus plus. I find her songs very uplifting. Um, yeah, that's good. But yeah, it's great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so can you share any books with us that you've been reading at the moment? Yeah, I tend to read a mix of novels and um, kind of factual books. Uh, I'm reading a novel at the moment by somebody called River Solomon. And it's an interesting book because it's part of the Afro... Uh, futurist genre um, and it's based on the idea that during the slave traders going across the Atlantic many of the slaves were thrown overboard if they became ill or if there was a problem with the 
with the weather or something, they just threw them overboard. Um, this book is based on an idea that the children of pregnant mothers who were thrown overboard were born under underwater and become a kind of marine a marine being, a sea living being, who create their own culture and uh, communities under the sea. And um, it's called The Deep, is the book. And it's a very interesting idea, and it is part of a genre that's becoming more popular now, more common, uh, rightfully so, about the black experience of history and um, about um, different perspectives on outcomes from what was a terrible time in, in, in global history, uh, which was slavery and um, the expropriation of, of thousands and millions of people into into slavery. Uh, the factual book I'm reading at the moment, I've just started a book <laughs> about US history called, and it's on my bookshelf, called Wildland. And it's really about the growth of the far right in the US, but also not just about far right fringe groups, but more about how far right ideas have become mainstream in, uh, in American politics, uh, in the Republican Party, and of course, culminating in Trump, but also what's happening post-Trump, which is that though Trump isn't present anymore, obviously, the ideas that he was talking about are very mainstream within the Republican Party. So it's really about that, that whole idea, which is concerning, partly because of obviously what it represents, which is a, a shift to the far right in the US, but also the rapid polarization of communities, not just in the US, but in other parts of the world as well, because people aren't naturally polarized. Most people are in the center, being forced out to, the, to, to one side or the other, which is, is not a fair representation of what most people feel comfortable with, but they're forced to do that just because of the way that politics and also the perspectives on the world are going. And I, th I think it's... Um, it's uh, it's it's a worrying trend, I think, for me at my age, obviously, because uh, uh, for a long time in my early life, most people and politics were vaguely in the centre. Yes, there, there was a left and right, and there were different beliefs and stuff, but there wasn't this extreme tendency that we see a lot of now, which um, which, as I said already, but uh, most people aren't that extreme. Most people uh, fluctuate somewhere around the centre, so I think it's it's a worrying time because of that. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you. Just just listening to you speak now, there's so many amazing insights that you've gained. I'm just wondering, you've, you've talked about kind of your, your music taste and what you've been reading. Is there anything that you've listened to or read that's actually made you think a bit differently? That's an interesting question. Most recently, I listened to a podcast uh, by Michael Goldfarb. He's a commentator political and cultural commentator uh, from the US, but lives in London, has lived in London for a long time. And whilst I can't remember the actual name of the podcast, one of the interesting things about Michael Goldfarb, even though he's, he's left-wing in the sense that he will be a Democrat who's in the US, um, he, he's always very keen to explore other points of view, just to see what the people are thinking. And it keeps you out of your bubble. For me, it keeps me out of my bubble. And I think after listening to that podcast, I know I have very clear views about things. And as you get older, you get more entrenched in your views. That's just a natural course of events. Fortunately, my views are moving further left, which I, I'm quite pleased about because most people, uh, some people tend to get more right-wing as they get older, but for me, I tend to be going more left-wing. But it, it's, it, his podcast reminded me that it's still important to see what other people are seeing. What, what, is, what is the world they're seeing? Why are they coming to these conclusions? What is it that's 
is causing them to have these beliefs uh, about these particular groups or about this particular intervention. Uh, and I think that doesn't mean you have to compromise in your own beliefs, but it just helps you keep things in, in proportion. And often when you hear the reason that somebody else has come to a certain set of beliefs that are different to your own, you realise, oh, well, okay, well, I can see how they got there. I don't agree with their beliefs, but I can see how they got there. And I mentioned a few months ago a book I was reading about the US and the move to the right in the Republican Party. There are a lot of precedents to that. There are a lot of reasons why, and one of the commonest reasons why in the US this has happened and in Europe as well, is that economic models have failed many, many people. And yes, money has been made, if you like, to, to for certain groups, but it hasn't trickled down to many, many people. And therefore, there's a frustration, which is why some people are moving to support people who wouldn't naturally be seen to be good for supporting groups of uh, people affected by poverty. But there's so much frustration around. So I think for me, that's why this podcast was important, because it reminded me I should, whilst it's good to have a set of beliefs, obviously, because that's part of what makes who you who you are, it's important to see why somebody else might come up to a different conclusion from what is actually a quite similar set of circumstances. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing that with us today. So thank you very much, Ian, for joining us on today's HIV Matters. It's been a pleasure. And thanks so much for the invitation, Michelle. And as always, wonderful to talk with you. Likewise. And I most certainly will be having you back on the show very soon. Great. Thank you. I would like to thank today's guest for joining me on HIV Matters. If you have any suggestions for guests you would like to see on the podcast, or if you fancy joining me on the show, please contact me at michelle.croston at nottingham.ac.uk. If you'd like to find out more about Nivna, head over to their website at www.nivna.org. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button to HIV Matters if you haven't already done so. Today's podcast was edited by Daniel Heggie. A special thank you from all the team at HIV Matters. Until next time, from the team at HIV Matters, thank you for listening and together we can make a difference.